Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, I'm going to do a short talk from something that I've written recently for the Center for Baptist Renewal on Athanasius and the doctrine of eternal generation. This is a doctrine that was extremely important in the early church, something that I've been teaching on recently in my classes. A lot of the short things that I write come out of my teaching. And so I thought it might be helpful to record an audio version of it for the podcast to help some of you who may want to affirm eternal generation or might be confused about it, help you think through the issues a little bit and see why it's important. So I hope you'll enjoy this short talk. We are brought to you by Christian Standard Bible. You can go to csbible.com to find out more about that English Bible translation and their study Bibles and commentaries and other resources. And now a short talk on eternal generation, but first, no big deal. of eternal generation was one of the linchpins of early orthodox christology starting most clearly with origin but flowering in the pro-nicene era with athanasius and others while this doctrine may appear on the surface to be a merely philosophical inquiry it was deeply scriptural for the pro-nicene theologians those who affirmed the doctrine of nicaea and constantinople that came together in what we consider now the nicene creed in his rebuttals of Arianism and theologies that were like Arianism, Athanasius made several basic theological moves based on a few key biblical texts. For our purposes here, we're going to walk through just one argument in his defense against the Arians from book one as a representative example of his larger project. And we'll see here that Athanasius's case for eternal generation helps buttress the biblical doctrine of the son's full divinity. He begins by addressing one particular Arian rebuttal. If the son is uncreated or eternal, they say, he must be the father's brother. Because for these groups, uh, the son, to be truly a son, he must come after the father in some sort of sequence. His begottenness, the one and only son, the only begotten son, his generation, must have had a beginning. So they say he must be a brother of the father. If he's eternal, he must be equal to him. If he's a son, he must have come after him at some point in time. Here's Athanasius's reply. Quote, for the father and the son were not generated from some pre-existing origin that we may account them brothers, but the father is the origin of the son and begot him. And the father is father and not born the son of any, and the son is son and not a brother. Further, if he is called the eternal offspring of the father, he, the son, is rightly so called. For never was the essence of the father imperfect, that what is proper to it should be added afterwards, nor, as a man from man, has the son been begotten, so as to be later than his father's existence. But he is God's offspring, and as being proper son of God, who is ever or eternal, he exists eternally. End quote. Put another way, Athanasius is happy to concede that there is some sort of origin in the son's existence from the father, for they are truly and always father and son. But it must be an eternal origin, an eternal begottenness or generation, because the father is eternal. So if the son is a created being, as the Arians said, a creature like us, he is not truly the only begotten son of the father. Instead, he's just a generic son, like humans are. 
to call Christians sons and daughters of the Father is to talk about our adoption as sons through the true Son. We see that in, for example, Romans 8. But if the Father did beget the Son in time, if he created him, there was some time that the Father existed without the Son, then the Father would have somehow added to himself by becoming a Father, which would indicate that this perfect God that the Bible describes, who lacks nothing, would have added to himself. There would have been something that he could have done to change or to become more than he was before. This would mean that God was imperfect or lacking, and that he can change or add titles or attributes to himself whenever he wants to, as though, again, he is lacking or needs to be able to add something to himself if there is some part of him that he needs to be that he is not yet. So one major issue with Arius and similar groups after him was their inability to distinguish between reading scripture literally and analogously, at least on this issue, for example. So for them, the son can only be a son if he is younger or somehow comes after the father in time. But the creator-creature distinction that they make, that there is the creator and there is creation, all of us, this distinction, that limits our ability to make one-to-one comparisons between how humans beget children and how the father does. God is creator, and and thus he stands outside of creation. He's not bound by the rules of creation like us. As Athanasius says, quote, For whereas it is proper to men to beget or have children in time from the imperfection of their nature, God's offspring is eternal, for his nature is ever perfect, end quote. Athanasius then trots out at least three passages to help affirm this point, quote, but if he is son, as the father says, and the scriptures proclaim, and son is nothing else than what is generated from the father, and what is generated from the father is his word, John 1, and his wisdom, 1 Corinthians 1, and his radiance, Hebrews 1, What is to be said, but that in maintaining, as the Arians do, the son was once not, they rob God of his word like plunderers and openly predicate of him that he was once without his proper word and wisdom, and that the light was once without radiance and the fountain was once barren and dry. End quote. This is a crucial point made by many theologians throughout these debates. To say that the son was created is to say that the father at some point was mute. He didn't have his word dumb, he didn't have his wisdom, and dull, there was no radiance of his glory. Further, they must say that the fountain of salvation that we see in Isaiah 12, for example, John 3, that that fountain was once dry. And when we think about how God is described throughout scripture, eternal, perfect, unchanging, complete, we would be doing serious damage to the biblical portrait of God if we said the son was created, because we would be adding things to God who is supposedly, biblically speaking, perfect already. Instead, the Bible describes that the Son is God, was always with God, and created all things with God. Again, John 1, 1 to 3. So whatever we say about the Son's begottenness, we must say that it is an eternal birth, distinct from our finite creaturely conceptions of birth. There is a reality, albeit a mysterious reality, that the Father and Son are fully and truly Father and Son. Both are fully and truly God and yet they are not each other. We know somewhat intuitively that when scripture says, for example, that God reaches down with his mighty right hand or that he turns his ear toward us, we recognize that God doesn't literally have arms and ears in these passages. We know it's an analogy to tell us about his activity. So in the same way, eternal generation affirms the son's uniqueness as the only begotten son of the father without implying that he was created or somehow of a lower status than the father.